Welcome to In Your Brain. I'm a neuroscience student at the University of Florida, and I'm super curious about everything having to do with the brain. Join me to discover what happens in your brain. Let's talk about the neuroscience behind addiction. Addiction is a neuropsychological disorder that affects millions of people around the world. I'm curious about what makes people become addicted to a substance and how long-term exposure to a drug can change our brains. We have an expert guest that will guide us through. My name is Barry Setlow. I'm a professor in the Department of Psychiatry uh, here at the University of Florida College of Medicine. And I should clarify, uh, though, that I am not a clinician. Um, so I, uh, I do not, you know, although I'm in the Department of Psychiatry, I do not see patients. I do not have a clinical degree in any respect. So um, I do solely basic research. Not so basic research, I should mention, but we'll get to that later. So what is addiction? The clinical term is substance use disorder, and this disorder is classified by the persistent and intense urge to use intoxicating substances, despite them having negative consequences on your health or other areas of life. I want to know if there are certain behavior patterns or risk factors that would make someone more likely to become addicted to a substance. So I asked Dr. Setlow. So number one is access. You got to have access. And the next components are going to be a combination of genes and environment. I mean, to, you know, to put it as broadly as possible. I mean, there's going to be some subset of people, um, probably a large subset of people who may try a substance and for, you know, whatever reason, likely genetics, but there can be environmental components as well, they don't enjoy it. Um, it makes them sick. It makes them unbearably anxious. You know, it makes them uncomfortable, or it produces some social and environmental outcome that they find aversive enough that they want to avoid that in the future. Of course, not everyone who tries a drug will become addicted to it. There is a genetic component, meaning there are certain genes that can make us more likely to become addicted. Just because someone is part of a family that has struggled with substance use disorder doesn't mean they will necessarily develop an addiction, but I think it's important to recognize risk factors like our genes. So how does one get diagnosed with this disorder? You need repeated consumption. You know, just once it doesn't do it. Even you know, with something like heroin, which we tend to think of as very, or cocaine, I think is very, very addictive. Just using it once does not make one an addict does not rise to the level of a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. It's the repeated use. Um, and, you know, even with repeated use, I mean, we think of, tend to think of, say, cocaine as, wow, cocaine is really addictive. And yes, a substantial proportion, something like 30 or 40 percent uh, of, now maybe it's lower, it could be even 20 percent of individuals who try cocaine in their lifetime go on to develop a cocaine use disorder. But that means that the majority of people who try cocaine, even if they use it, you know, try it once, or even if they use it in a controlled manner, let's say, you know, recreationally, oh, sure, I did a few lines at a party um, <laughs> when I was young, but they can leave it behind. Most people do that with alcohol. There are a lot of reasons why people might be wanting to repeatedly use a substance that may cause temporary joy or a release of pain. 
So often, people with substance use disorders are struggling with underlying mental health issues. And there is a lot of variability in what makes someone dependent to a substance or not. And this variability is also seen in animal research. Just about every rat, like 95 to 98% of rats, will happily take cocaine if you give them the opportunity to do so. And in a way, that's not that surprising because, you know, there are no, for the rats, there are no consequences. I mean, right. the rats don't have a job. Um, they don't have to <laughs> worry, how is this going to affect my children? Uh, they, you know, that kind of is their job, right? To take cocaine. And so they will happily press a lever to get a hit of cocaine. But if you make the rat situation more akin to humans' real world conditions, like what if the rats do have something else to do? Even something as simple as a block of wood to chew on uh, will get the rats to reduce their cocaine consumption. Or if you give them a choice, do you want to take cocaine or do you want to you know, drink sugar water? A lot of rats will say, no, I'm good with sugar water, mm -hmm. thanks. Um, you know, now I've got something else to do. Or if you introduce you know, consequences uh, to the rat, saying, okay, you can take the cocaine, but if you press this lever to get a hit of cocaine, there'll be a scary noise. Many rats will say, oh, no, that's, that's too scary. I don't want the cocaine that much. Um, and they'll back off. But there is a subset of rats who will say, you know what? Heck with the consequences. You can keep your block of wood and sugar water. I'm going to take cocaine. <laughs> okay, so what is actually going on in the brains of those addicted to a substance? In order to understand addiction, it's necessary to mention the reward system. The reward system refers to a group of brain areas that are activated in situations that give us a rewarding or reinforcing feeling. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter, or chemical messenger, that's most associated with the reward system and feelings of pleasure, satisfaction, and motivation. Scientists know this by doing many behavior and brain simulation experiments over the years, However, experts in the field don't entirely agree on the significance and interpretations of data. Here's Dr. Setlow's take on it. Oh boy. So um, I guess, first of all, dopamine is often characterized as the reward neurotransmitter. Um, but I, I would argue that it's better characterized as reinforcement. And so, okay, what's the difference between reward and reinforcement? So one way that they're they're defined is that reward is pleasure or you know euphoria to put it another way you know what makes us feel good so if we ate a piece of good chocolate cake that, that sort of yum yum mm, this tastes good i feel good when i eat chocolate cake um whereas reinforcement is more of sort of what compels us to go out and keep eating cake or to try to get you know, go out to the store and buy another chocolate cake, sort of stamping in those associations between that tasty look picture of a tasty looking cake and the pleasurable sensations that we experienced. Dopamine is more involved in that, you know, reinforcement side of things, but also in the motivation, you know, providing that motivation to go out and, you know, get another piece of cake. The release of dopamine is what is making us want to continue eating a piece of cake, even if you eat one every day and the pleasure sensation you once felt is not really there anymore, but the habit of getting the chocolate cake is being reinforced by dopamine. Great, now I want cake.
Now let's replace the chocolate cake with a certain substance, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, you pick. How do these substances change the reward system over the course of using them? All drugs of abuse, with the exception of some hallucinogens like LSD or PCP or psilocybin, all other drugs of abuse act in some way to increase dopamine release in a part of our brain uh, known as the nucleus accumbens. Um, and it is that dopamine release that seems to drive continued drug use and ultimately compulsive substance use. You might ask, then, what's the difference between, let's say, cocaine and a piece of you know, tasty chocolate cake? Um, cocaine is better at it. Cocaine tends to induce much more dopamine release than a piece of tasty chocolate cake. This dopamine release we experience upon encountering something that's you know, pleasurable and you know, hopefully beneficial for us, that's really, that's evolved to help us pursue things that are going to keep us alive and you know, help us propagate our genes. Um, but drugs of abuse essentially hijack this system. So they're not providing necessarily any benefits in the forms of calories or warmth or reproductive partners, you know, that sort of natural rewards do, um, but they produce the same effects in our brain and in a way sort of telling our brain, boy, whatever, whatever you just did, that cocaine or heroin, um, that's worth pursuing again because it produced this big flood of dopamine. The problem with substances hijacking the reward system is that the brain is very adaptable and it always wants to be in equilibrium, like the rest of our bodies and everything else really. So over a period of time of getting a flood of dopamine from external sources like drugs, neurons will decrease the amount of dopamine receptors they have to reduce this intense dopamine signal that's coming in. Without these substances, the brain is left with less receptors for this molecule that helps us feel pleasure. To be clear, the amount of dopamine receptors we have in general varies a lot in individuals and in animals. This variability comes from our genes and our environment, so someone who starts out with less dopamine receptors than average might be more vulnerable to abuse if exposed to drugs. So there's the potential for a little bit of a vicious cycle arrangement and that, boy, if you don't have enough D2 dopamine receptors to begin with, then maybe you're more vulnerable to at least some drugs of abuse, but then the drugs themselves may cause further reductions. From a scientific perspective, it makes it hard to dissociate cause and effect if you're looking at people uh, because you all you see is the outcome that, okay, this is a person with a history of cocaine use. They have fewer dopamine receptors. Is that because of their genes, their environment, their substance use? We don't know. However, the brain does bounce back. Again, it's very adaptable. During the period where the number of receptors are returning back to baseline is a particularly vulnerable time for relapse, though the risk of relapse never really goes away since substance use is a learned behavior. The reward system is not the only part of the brain affected from substance abuse. Continued use of drugs have been shown to impair the function of the prefrontal cortex, a brain area associated with cognitive function and decision-making. This is not great because if you want to stop using substances, then you want your prefrontal cortex to be active and in good condition, helping you out. 
our prefrontal cortex is, is fairly delicate as far as parts of our brain go, and so it's easy to, it's easy to damage relative to other parts of the brain. There is evidence that this damage can last an extended period of time. A lot of what we know about addiction comes from animal studies done by the labs of people like Dr. Setlow, so I was curious to know more about his research. Boy, over the years I've done, I've done a lot of work in different areas with different drugs of abuse, but I'll, I'll focus on one that's probably going to be the most, you know, the, the most interesting, and that concerns cocaine and decision-making. Right. So in our lives, you know, we have to make choices between things like immediate versus delayed gratification or, you know, a safe option that's sort of meh, not that interesting versus, you know, maybe another option that's more rewarding, but ooh, if we choose that, then there's a chance that bad stuff might happen. So safe versus risky options, immediate versus delayed gratification. These are just fundamental choices that we all have to make regularly. And there's evidence from studies of human chronic cocaine users that these types of decision-making processes are skewed uh, toward greater preference for immediate gratification or greater preference for you know, risky options that, you know, even when the, the risk of bad things happening might be really extreme. And so, you know, some time ago, we became interested in whether these types of decision patterns in human cocaine users were, or these pre-existing patterns of choice behavior that might predispose them to use cocaine, or are these consequences of the cocaine itself? Um, and so, you know, because you can't do the randomized placebo-controlled double-blind studies in humans and say, okay, you guys take cocaine, you guys, you know, just eat chocolate cake, and we'll come back in a year and have you make choices in the lab. <laughs> Obviously, that's not an option, but we can address these experiments in animals. Uh, and so we've done a number of studies in rats um, trying to address address these questions. Um, in particular, we focused on this, the, the causal role of cocaine in, or potential causal role of cocaine in um, altering decision-making patterns. And we found that both with the choices between immediate versus delayed gratification and choices between safe versus risky options, uh, that cocaine, a history of cocaine use in our rats, tends to push their choice behavior uh, toward that, well, more toward that that we see in human chronic cocaine users. Essentially, the rats that took cocaine show a greater preference for immediate gratification, and they show a greater preference for risky options versus safe options. So long-term exposure to cocaine actually changes the rat's brain and decision-making patterns. How can this research help humans suffering from addiction? My concern, or what I'd like to think is the broader concern, is that the, the more likely people are, are to make choose immediate gratification, or the more likely people are to choose risky over safe options, I mean, those most of the time tend to be bad choices, but they're also the types of choices that can precipitate continued drug use and relapse. And so my logic is that if we can understand, okay, what's happening? How is it happening? Is there a way to reverse these patterns of decision-making? We can hopefully uh, reduce the likelihood of continued drug use and relapse. We've done you know, some work looking at pharmacological tools that can you know, reduce preference for immediate gratification or reduce preference for risky options, even in rats with a history of substance use. 
And in addition, we're investigating the sort of what are some of the neurobiological changes that cocaine is causing um, that might be responsible for these shifts in decision-making patterns. And the hope is that a better understanding of the neurobiology there might uh, suggest potential targets for new therapeutics. Because you don't, I mean, there's a, there's a fine line. I mean, you don't want to, well, let's take immediate versus delayed gratification. I mean, most of the time, it's better to wait and not choose immediate gratification, but not always. And so you don't want to pursue a therapeutic approach that renders people incapable of seizing the day when, when that's warranted. And so you want to find a way of just dialing that back a little bit in individuals you know, for whom that history of substance use might have pushed them toward immediate gratification in a pathological manner. There are currently medications for those suffering from substance use disorder that mimic the role of these drugs, meaning they act on the same receptors but somehow don't produce the negative effects of the actual drugs. Other treatments that seem to be strongly supported by research are cognitive behavioral therapy and contingency management, which is a type of therapy where individuals are rewarded or reinforced for positive behavior. There's still a lot we don't know about substance use disorder, and it's a very active area of research since drug overdose deaths have steadily increased. If you or someone you know is affected by substance abuse, you are not alone. Reach out to local rehab centers for help or go to samhsa.gov for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Check back in two weeks for a new episode. Thanks for listening!